Good evening. You can do better than that. Good evening. I got to get warmed up a little bit. I know it's cold outside, and it's good to see a wonderful crowd here. What a wonderful day it's been uh, here at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here, uh, and we are so happy that you've decided to join us on a cold evening uh, and share some time in God's Word and in praising His name. Thankful this morning for the wonderful job that Austin Oakley did. Uh, it's been a pleasure to work with him on a daily basis. Uh, such maturity and a young guy and such leadership qualities and the hard work that he does. I'm thankful to know him. Uh, really thankful to play jokes on him. And uh, doing that, he was a really good sport about that. But really, what a fine, mature young man. What a wonderful job he did uh, sharing God's word and a lesson to us this morning from John's second epistle. Tonight we're going to be talking about the book of Ruth. And we won't be reading a great deal in the book of Ruth. What I hope is tonight's sermon uh, will spur you to read this book and think about the things that will be talked about tonight. Often we look at the book of Ruth and we think about Ruth and the wonderful qualities that she had and the focus is on her. Uh, and indeed, she had some wonderful attributes, a woman of great character uh, and great conviction. But tonight I want to talk about Boaz. Uh, and when I talk about Boaz, because I want to talk about how we as adults and leaders and parents and grandparents are training the next generation of male leadership uh, and male membership uh, in the Church of Christ. I think there's a lot of things that, that maybe are falling by the wayside that we need to focus on more often. And I think when we look at the story uh, of Ruth and we look at what Boaz does and the things uh, that he demonstrates from his character, uh, we see a tremendous example uh, to look at that often may not be uh, talked about because he's overshadowed by the wonderful uh, work of the Moabitess Ruth. I do want to go over a little bit of background in the book of Ruth uh, and tell you what went on in this book, what to think about as we look through this book. And it's going to be kind of a quick summary. I encourage you to read this short four chapter book uh, that's nestled in between the book of Judges uh, and the narratives of the Sam, uh, first and second Samuel uh, and first and second Kings. And hopefully what we go through tonight will help uh, aid in that. This story is one uh, that I look at as family uh, and friendship, how important family ties are and family bonds are, uh, and that of friendship uh, and kindness. And, and this book is where I told you where it's nestled in between the book of the Judges uh, and the Samuel King's narrative uh, is in between books with a great amount of strife and difficulty. Uh, if you've ever studied or read the book of Judges, you know that Judges is full of, of Israel falling off the wagon uh, and then a judge having to come along and put them back uh, in their place. There's a lot of bloodshed, a lot of warfare, uh, a lot of strife and difficulty in the book of Judges. Uh, and even before that we have Joshua, which is a book all about warfare and conquering Canaan in the Promised Land. Then we move over to the Samuel King's narrative uh, and we see a great deal of strife uh, and difficulty uh, in those books. We see a great deal of good things in both books, but they're not the wonderful story that we see in Ruth. It's really free uh, from any sort of strife and fighting and, and difficulty uh, and, and sin and things that are disappointing to God. We look at this book and there's some just great things that's put in here. And I, I think often this book is said, well, this book is in the Bible because it's the lineage of David. Uh, and that very may be the case, 
But I don't think that's the only reason this book is placed within the canon of scriptures. Christians did not place this book within the canon of scriptures. This book existed in the Jewish canon of scriptures that would have laid uh, in the tabernacles, excuse me, in the synagogues uh, in Jesus and Paul's day. This book has long since been a part uh, of Jewish scripture. It's got a very, very important uh, story to it. It does occur, occur during the time of the judges. I think if we look at the fact that, that Boaz was David's great-grandfather, Boaz and Ruth were his great-grandparents, that probably based on when David reigned, this book probably occurred, the events of it, in about 1200 B.C., so about 12 centuries before Christ came to this earth. We do not know who wrote the book of Ruth, uh, but it was written at a later date uh, than when it occurred. We see a verse uh, in chapter 4, verse 7, where they're talking about the swapping of sandals between Boaz and the other next of kin of Elimelech, and they trade sandals. And the author of Ruth says, this is how they did things in the former days uh, in Israel. So scholarship looks back and says, that must have been written at a later date, perhaps even during the time of David, or I happen to think much later that. We look at some of the characters uh, that are in this book and some of the personnel that we come across. We don't know a great deal a lot about all of them except really Ruth and Boaz and Naomi because many of the others don't have speaking parts in the book. But it's interesting to look at the names. Elimelech and Naomi uh, were the matriarch and patriarch of this group. Elimelech and Naomi were from the town of Bethlehem. Uh, and his name means God is king. And her name means pleasant. His two sons, Malon and Kilion, mean sick and failing. And we'll see in the first part of the narrative that they died uh, early on in this story, leaving two widows behind. Malon was married to Ruth, the fo- one of the focuses of our uh, book here, and her name means friendship. And Orpah means a gazelle. And then we have Boaz, and that word means in hymns is strength. And if you guys remember when Solomon was building the temple in the book of 1 Kings 7, we see that two of the ceremonial pillars that were put out in front of them were named, in front of this temple were named Boaz and Joaquin. And that is why there's a symbol of strength. And that word Boaz is why that pillar was named after it. And we'll see in the character of Boaz that he was a strong, strong character. The background as we continue in the book, the issue has been that they've had to retreat from Bethlehem because there's been a famine. We don't, as modern-day Americans, we don't appreciate the devastating nature of a famine uh, in the ancient world. We think, well, if we didn't have any food growing in our garden or it was a drought, we'd just run down to the market and buy some food. We don't realize that in the ancient world, when there was a famine in the land, you had to go somewhere else. People had to migrate elsewhere in the ancient world when there was no food because there was no supermarket to go to. There was no disaster relief coming to help you out. You had to move. And so we see them make a journey from Bethlehem into the land of Moab where obviously there was food and a famine was not going on. And most scholars think this was a journey of about 75 uh, to 100 miles, which for us sounds like, uh, doesn't sound like a very long trip, but when you're on foot uh, and moving a family uh, from your hometown to somewhere else and going to live there, the Bible tells us, for 10 years, uh, it is a long journey and a long trip. The two sons of Elimelech married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, uh, were not natives of Israel. They were natives of Moab. Uh, And this is a strange marriage situation because God had prohibited or at least discouraged uh, the marrying of foreign women uh, in lands that they were going into. Moab is not one of the people who has specifically said, you shall not marry them. But people from the land of Moab were not admitted 
to the congregation of Israel because they treated the sons of Israel badly when they were making their journey into the promised land. And so God pushes a curse on that. After these marriages, at some point in time, both Naomi's husband, Elimelech, the patriarch, and her two sons die in Moab. And what a terrible tragedy that is just from a sad family perspective, but also it left three widows. In the ancient world, we don't appreciate again, just like we don't appreciate famine, we don't appreciate the economic plight and social plight and political plight of widows who had no man to represent them. In today's time, we know our widows suffer a great deal with a great deal of many troubles. And imagine that amplified in the fact that you could not long-term own property or have a say in things in the town. We see that immediately when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, they are among the poor. Even though her husband and Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech, had been part of a property ownership. We have to keep in mind that Elimelech was probably part owner in a property owned by his entire clan uh, and family that Boaz and some of these other people uh, may have owned. So they were in a terrible economic and social situation when they lost their men, something that's kind of difficult for us in American society to deal with. We see a wonderful commitment from Ruth, and this is probably the most often talked about thing in this book, is that Ruth stands by her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law begs him, go on back home. I have no more sons to have birth for, to birth for you. you. Go back to your homeland, to your families. I'm going to return to mine. And, and, and wanting them to be successful, wanting them to go find uh, other husbands and come back. And, and both Orpah and Ruth don't want to do that. But eventually, Naomi convinces Orpah to return to her homeland. Uh, and Ruth says, I am going to cling to you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And wherever you die, I'm going to die there as well. A tremendous amount of loyalty from Ruth. And that's not just sentimental loyalty. That's Ruth saying, I'm not going to leave this widow woman to go back and be poor by herself. And you say, Tim, how do you know that? I know that because Ruth goes back and she works very, very hard to support her and Naomi when they get back into that family. We look over in the fields of Boaz. That's the next place we find these uh, Ruth at, and she's gleaning in the fields. Uh, She finds favor in the sight of Boaz. Boaz takes notice of her. I assume that Ruth may have been kind of good looking, uh, and she had notice of Boaz, but also Boaz knows her story. When they came back to Bethlehem, when Naomi returned, what Ruth had done for her and sticking by her had been made known to the people in Bethlehem, and it was known to Boaz. Boaz is known as their kinsman redeemer. He was kin to Elimelech, and in doing so, there are certain biblical duties that you can look and see in Numbers and Deuteronomy, where if some man died and left his family, other family members were supposed to marry into that and join that. Uh, In Deuteronomy, we see the Leverite law where it says, if if you're a brother to a man who dies, you're supposed to marry, and you're not married, you would marry his widow in order to have children for that man and propagate that along in that way. We see a scene in the threshing floor and Boaz and Ruth comes and lays at his feet. And I say that and mention that because it's a beautiful story that I think sometimes has a sexual connotation placed on it that doesn't fit in the context of the book. There are some scholars who think when she asked Boaz to cover her with the, the cloak of his feet uh, and her laying that, that their feet uh, is euphemism uh, for an inappropriate relationship. And some of you guys may have heard that. And I'll tell you why I don't think that's true when I look at the context. 
because that type of man and that type of woman are not what are described in this book. We see a man in Boaz who constantly refers to Ruth as my daughter. He gives her terms of affection that would not be given to a man who was, who was wanting to look at a fornicative relationship uh, with another woman. And Ruth is obviously a very virtuous woman. Boaz looks out for her and he tells his young man, don't you touch her. Because we can see even from Naomi's statement that it would have been a custom or common in that day for women, young, poor women who may have come and worked in the fields for the young men who worked those fields to take advantage of them. And Boaz says, hands off of doing this. So if you do hear this story, as you read, you'll be more familiar with what I'm talking about and that thing. Don't let somebody quote things out of context and look at things out of context. Perhaps, yes. Elsewhere in Ezekiel, the covering of one with the corner of one's garment is a betrothal symbol that it's talked about between God and Israel. So I'm not saying that that language is non-existent, but it doesn't fit with the character of Ruth and Boaz that the author gives us in this book for them to be one who would engage in an illicit sexual relationship that would destroy both of their reputations. Boaz is not the nearest kinsman, and we'll talk about that too. There's another person that comes, and this kinsman redeemer, Boaz wants to marry Ruth, but he has to redeem the land. But unfortunately, there's someone else closer to Elimelech and family, and so he has to, to deal with that person and go through a little bit of a business decision with him. And we see the famous swapping of the sandals. Now, I hope I don't ever have to do a deal with any of you where we swap our shoes, because my shoes stink, and yours might stink too. But in that day and time, we see that it was said that we don't have signatures and contract. But if I made a deal with, with Larry Clemens, and Larry said, oh, I didn't make a deal with Tim. I hold up Larry's shoe, and I said, look here, how did I get this shoe? Larry gave it to me because we made a deal. Now, I trust Larry enough not to ask for uh, his shoe uh, in a business deal. But we see that happening between Boaz and this next kinsman that Boaz gets the opportunity to take Elimelech's land and marry uh, into Ruth. Uh, and then they are married and they have children, and it's a blessing. This child is called a restorer and a nourisher to Naomi. The people of the area call him that, and they say, Blessed be the Lord, because he's left you this nourisher, this rest. This son was going to be the redeemer of that family because now they had a male heir uh, amongst them that they did not have before. Tim, you said a lot of things there, and I'm telling you, go read the book. This is why I'm giving you an overview of what we had. But the story is of one that moves from tragedy to one of great rejoicing. And it's a wonderful story. And yes, at the very close, we see somewhat of an appendix that tells that these are of David's line uh, of lineage. I don't think that's the purpose that we have this book. I think God gives us his word and these stories, these narratives of the Old Testament for far beyond our historical value that we typically cheapen them up by saying these are historical accounts. These are accounts that God wants us to know about so we can look at the character of people who are godly. And we can look at Ruth, but tonight we're going to look at Boaz briefly. And I want to give you some traits of being Boaz. When we look at what you'll see in this book, Boaz is described in chapter 2 in verse 1 as a worthy man. And literally in Hebrew, it means a mighty man, uh, a term typically used of warriors. He was a man of God. When Boaz is introduced, the very first language and dialogue we see from Boaz is him going to his men in the field and saying, May the Lord bless you. And his men reply, may the Lord bless you. 
We see that this is a man who believed in God, who knew God would bless people, who talked with his workers about God. He also is a law-abiding, and I say law-abiding, I don't mean like in a police sense, according to the Torah, what we would call the Pentateuch. People that owned fields and gleaned them were instructed to leave the corners ungleaned and to allow the poor to come glean in their fields. One of the things that made God so angry at Israel was not just the idolatry they adopted, but it was the neglecting of the poor and the widow. Because God has told us the poor will always... Jesus even said that. And landowners who glean their fields were supposed to allow the poor to come behind them and feed themselves. And we see that Boaz is one of the guys that does that. So he honors God's law. He is a leader of men. You can tell that his men respect him. When he gives them orders, they do it. They abide by it. They love him in the Lord. They want the Lord to bless Boaz. He is not an overbearing and evil boss, but a kind and generous man of God leading other men in their work. I see Boaz as being merciful, kind, and generous because he sees Ruth gleaning in the fields all day long. He tells his young men not to bother her. He awards her the status of being one of his young maidens, which means you essentially work for me and you are protected and you are under my authority and you can glean in these fields as much as you want to. As a matter of fact, he tells his men to leave a little extra behind for Ruth, to pull some out of the sheaves uh, and leave it laying. That is a man giving away money. That, that is what that is, it's a businessman giving away money and he's kind and generous to her and gives her plenty. We see other times in the story where Boaz gives Ruth even more and more because he says he knows what she's done for her mother-in-law, Naomi. We've already talked about how he's being protective of those people and of Ruth in particular, telling her young men to leave these alone. And I want to pause and I want you to think for just a minute about the young men that we are raising. I have a daughter, so I don't have the luxury of raising a son and doing that, but I, I believe I have a responsibility to those men that are younger than me to train them. And there's becoming more and more of those younger than me uh, as time progresses on. Whether they be teenagers or they be young adults or they be college age, whatever it may be. And all of you who may be parents of sons or maybe grandparents or have any kind of influence, many of you are mentors acting in the program that Philip Jenkins has tried to generate amongst our youth or your cocoon leaders or your Bible class teachers uh, of younger men than you. We are falling down on the job of raising men in a lot of ways. And I think we should raise men to be like the men we see in the Bible who God compliments and God praises and God chooses to give us a narrative about this man, Boaz, a man who respects God and who's respected by others who respects God, a good, solid, godly leader. And he's merciful, kind, and generous. You know, being a man is not always being stern and mean and rough. It's also being merciful and kind uh, and generous. It's being protective of those who need our protection. It's sticking up for those who are, are not uh, able to stick up for themselves. That's one of the definitions of, of being a man. And as we think about our responsibility to train them, we need to be teaching them about doing those things. And what a better character to look at than Boaz. We see as we continue on with Boaz, he honored the honorable. He honored Ruth because he says, I know what you have done for your mother-in-law, how you sacrificed going back to your homeland and you took on the burden of a widow helping a widow. 
which is could not be in a more imagined difficult situation for them to deal with. But he recognized honorable things in other people and he gave honor to them. And we as men and our young people need to understand how we need to do that. We need to give honor to those whom honor is due. Whether they be authority over us, which is a growing trend in our nation, uh, to buck and resist authority and to downgrade uh, authority. We need to recognize that. And we need to think about those who should be honored amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who take the time to teach us. Those who take the time to mentor us. And especially those who take the time to shepherd this congregation. The Bible says if they do a good job, they're worthy of double honor. And we should respect them. There's a beautiful announcement Griff made this morning in first service. If you didn't hear that, there'll be follow-up information about the decision that our shepherds made about which direction we're going to take this congregation and handling the growth of the Lord's Church in Wilson County. And it's wonderful to know so many people listened to that and honored that because they trust these men to do that. The next generation of men need to be just as trustworthy. And we need to train them to be trustworthy by teaching them to honor those who are worthy of honor. He allowed Ruth to keep her dignity as a worker and a woman. He did not hand out things to Ruth. He allowed her to work and give herself dignity and respect. And he treated her with honor uh, as a woman, not in allowing his men to, to violate her and to be rough with her and he himself being honorable with that. Boys, young men, and men in this congregation, we need to honor women. We need to give them and always respect their dignity. We need to look at them, especially our wives, as Christ does the church and love them unconditionally. But we need to remember to respect women. We live in a society where our culture does not do that. Sexually or morally or politically, uh, it's become more and more where women are just an object of men's desire uh, and being used for purposes uh, other than what God intended. And we need to be mindful of that. And we as men do not need to participate in those things. We need to be around doing the right thing. That's what Boaz does at every turn. We see when it comes time to make a decision. Boaz wants to marry Ruth. He wants to be the redeemer of this family and when he comes time to make a decision he makes it quickly and he's proactive and he's aggressive he goes immediately the next morning to the city gate where decisions would have been made in this small little peasant town of Bethlehem and he gathers the next kinsman redeemer he gathers the ten elders of the city and he says we need to have a business meeting we need to take care of this business right away just as Naomi predicts he will before he goes and does it she tells Ruth He's going to do it right that first thing uh, in the morning. So here's a man who has a decision. He's made up his mind. He is proactive and aggressive about getting it done. And I think today too often we've raised a generation of folks who are indecisive and noncommittal. Uh, and we need to graze men to be decision makers. And I'm not saying this to be misogynistic. Women need to be good decision makers uh, as well. But tonight's message is about how we're raising the next generation of young men. The other thing I see of Boaz is he was respected among the community. We need good men to be deacons and elders one day. And one of the requirements of being an elder is to be well spoken of by others outside of the church and to be respected by others in the community. Uh, cause, because if you're respected outside of the church, you're gonna be respected in the church because it means you live your life outside these walls just like you do inside these walls. 
And that qualification of being elders, sometimes I think we look at qualifications for deacons and elders and say, okay, that's a qualification for men who want to be deacons and elders one day. But you look down that list and you find something on there that God doesn't want all men to be like uh, in making that decision and be respectful and respected uh, by those in the community. And we see that that's the case when Boaz makes this decision to redeem Ruth and Naomi in the land, it's praised by those in the city. They wish great things upon him. They, may, they, they wish the, the blessings of their ancestors upon them and they would not do that would Boaz not be a respected man in his community. When I think about men in the Bible among mankind, there's very few people we come across in the Bible that the narrative has absolutely nothing bad to say about. Even David, a man the Bible describes as a man after his own heart, has a very, very difficult story. David was a terrible father. He raised children that were awful, that did awful things. Even Solomon turns out to be the man who wrecks the kingdom of Israel from a thousand years ago even to modern day times where Israel does not ever exist as the kingdom it did at one time. David goes through a terribly difficult life. He makes some poor decisions, but he makes some great decisions as well. If we look at that Samuel King's narrative about David and the kings of Israel, Jonathan is one that runs across my mind as the Bible finds no fault in Jonathan. He is a loyal person. He's a respecter of God, a respecter uh, of the kingdom of Israel, uh, and just a wonderful guy. And when I look at Boaz, I look at that too. There's nothing in the narrative bad to say about Boaz that God gives us. So when we're searching for examples, when we're searching for a hero in the Bible, let's look at these names as well. Not just men like David or men like uh, Hezekiah or Josiah or even those in the New Testament. Let's look at these little stories every once in a while and say, what can we learn from what God has blessed us uh, and given us? The chivalrous nature of mankind is disappearing, and I believe that there's a conscious effort by society today to destroy masculinity uh, and the things that make men men and who have made men leaders in our community and country. You know, I hear a lot of complaints about male leadership right now uh, in our country. Well, there's a generation that raised those people and they're responsible for the actions of those that they raised. We have to make sure that the next generation that I raise, that I'm effective of, and the generation that you have a chance to raise now are not ones who have no masculinity, no honor, no chivalry, no respect for women, no leadership skills, no respect for others around them that are not respected by other people. We need to raise Boazes. We need to raise people who are like Boaz. And these people, these young people, these young men need a hero to look up to. And everybody in here has that responsibility. The Bible says that older men are supposed to teach younger men. And that's a universal statement uh, that's made. Many of you that know me know I kind of sometimes joke and I'm a little bit uh, mean sometimes in what I say about what I think a lot of things are going on with little boys these days. I think that helicopter moms and John John outfits are turning our young boys into a bunch of sissies. But I'm not going to go into a long diatribe about that tonight. But that's one of the, I'm not going to go into that, so I know those of you that know me are afraid uh, that I'm going to do that. But I, I'm not going to go into that. There's a godly way to raise young men. There's a godly way to influence young men. And we need to find examples in the Bible of people like Boaz uh, that carry that out. I think sometimes we worry too much about our young men's careers instead of worrying about their character. 
How much time and money and effort do we spend on saying, I want them to have the education that they need to be able to get a good career in life and be successfully socially and financially. And we don't spend time talking about what kind of character that we are molding in those. Those of you young men who are listening to me right now, I want you to be concerned about that. I'm going to tell you something I've learned just in 43 short years on this earth, that your character means a lot. And what kind of character you have may very well determine how successful your career is. It will certainly mold how successful your spiritual career is. So let's be just as concerned about our young people's character as we are about what they're going to do for a living. Because what they do for a living is going to be burned up and destroyed one day. Their soul uh, is going to be eternal. I think about heart disease. And I think just about a year ago tomorrow, I got to take my first ambulance ride of my life. And I wish I didn't have to do that, but I did. And it turns out that I have an incurable heart disease. A heart disease that may one day wind up taking my life. It may cause me to have to have uh, several surgeries or whatever it may wind up being. I don't know what God has in store. I know that God has answered a lot of prayers uh, about that. And I think about Boaz's heart and what kind of heart he had and other people in the Bible to have a, a good heart and not a diseased heart. I have a diseased human heart and that's okay because that heart's going to stop beating one day no matter what. No matter if it's diseased or if it's not diseased. Uh, and, and it's going to die one day. But my spiritual heart will continue forever. And my spiritual heart needs a lot of work. I'm going to tell you it needs a lot of work and it always will. And I'm thankful to be surrounded by good men who have helped guide me uh, in that to help make me uh, a decent man, a decent husband and a decent father who still needs work. But I think about the Psalm 5110 and I think that's going to be our invitation song tonight. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. My physically diseased heart may require one day for me to have a literal change of heart. But what's important for you tonight is if you have a diseased spiritual heart, you need to have a change of that spiritual heart. If you haven't been carrying forth your responsibilities as a young man or in raising of young men or instilling the character and attributes that God gives us examples of in those around you, I encourage you to change your heart in that way. Change your outlook. But more importantly, if tonight you have a heart disease that will wound up sending your soul to hell, do not leave here with that disease. There is a cure, a cure that has been paid for by a price that health care coverage will never be able to pay. It's been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ to heal your diseased spiritual heart and create in you a new heart, a heart that cares about doing the things of God, of instilling the good character of God uh, in other people. And I hope that you will consider that tonight. If you're here and you have a heart disease because you've been unforgiving or because you haven't asked for forgiveness, come and do that tonight. If you have a disease where you've become a Christian and you've let Satan get a foothold back in your life and to tear your life apart, uh, with whatever it may be. If you're suffering from addiction, if you're suffering from problems with anger or hate or anything that is causing a wedge to divide between you and God, don't leave here tonight with that because you can't carry out the duties that God has placed for us in training others to be godly if you yourself are not godly. So if you need to get that step out of the way, I encourage you to do so as we stand and sing tonight. <laughs>